following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right, we are in Isaiah again tonight. If you would turn your Bible there, this time to a shorter chapter than this morning. This is going to be Isaiah 61. I'll give you a moment to turn there and follow along as I read Isaiah 61, and I'm reading out of the New King James Version, as is usually the case. Last, uh, this last week, I took uh, my tablet computer with me. I did not take a print Bible down to Florida, which was the first for me. I almost always do that, but uh, it worked out conveniently to take the tablet and end up using the English Standard Version because that was what was handy on the tablet. Uh, I think I have the New King James on there, but it's a little bit more involved to go hunt around for it and find it in the Olive Tree Bible software, but the ESV application is nice. A freebie if you're interested in that for your phone or tablet. Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Recognize that from any New Testament portion? I believe you do in uh, the Lord's ministry in the synagogue in Nazareth. But he stopped there, the text continues, in the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning. Notice the word for there means in the place of, instead of, or replacing. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Keep that in mind, my friends. All of this that we've read here in Isaiah 60 and then tonight in 61, and really the whole program of God is that he would be honored and glorified in our midst and in that of the entire, the eyes of the entire world. Verse 4, And they shall rebuild the old ruins, they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the foreigner shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you shall be named the priests of the Lord. They shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of shame, you shall have double honor, and instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land they shall possess double, everlasting joy shall be theirs. I can't wait, my friends to see those days which yet come. Verse 8, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth and will make with them an everlasting covenant. Their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the earth brings forth its bud, 
As the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. Those are really good verses. Really good verse there, verse 11, for all you gardeners out there. You pay attention to that. God is going to plant righteousness and praise, and it's going to germinate on the face of the earth. That will be a wonderful thing to see. All right, let me pray again one more time. Heavenly Father, we bow before you tonight and thank you for the reading of your word in Isaiah 61. We're thankful for the mention of Messiah there and how he, our Lord, reported that those words were fulfilled in the hearing of his synagogue listeners back in that day, and some of the words yet remain to be fulfilled in that wonderful prophecy. Heavenly Father, we pray tonight for some of these requests that are before us, for before me at least. I was uh, sent these letters. I want to pray for the Kurwicki family. We thank you for them and their ministry, Lord. And as uh, Brother David uh, turns over some of the Lenaway County ministries to another missionary as he steps back slowly from his full-time work and uh, in toward, towards retirement, we ask, Lord, that you will help them and keep them. Uh, he still has a couple of counties worth of release time classes that he's doing this fall and lots of work to be done. We pray that you will bless the ministry to the children. Similarly, for Kirby Hughesby, we received a note from him as well and his schedule through May, June, July, and August, a very busy kind of schedule at various camps and things. And so we, we remember him before you as well. Father, it was a blessing for me to be able to see Tim and Christina Gosen down in Florida this past week. I think they arrived on Thursday morning after overnight flying from Argentina, and we just thank you for giving them safe passage. We uh, thank you, Lord, that they were allowed to have their first baptism in their new sanctuary, Uh, Manuel being baptized, testifying in believer's baptism of his salvation. Lord, we pray and thanks that he did a good job in leading the youth group in song and prayer for the first time after that, jumping right into service. We pray for Andres, Ruth, and Patricia who came to the United States in March and are living with grandparents and doing work there. Uh, We also pray, Lord, for the furlough trip that the Gosens will have. We're looking forward to hear from them and uh, find out uh, what's going on uh, with them here in person with us. And Lord, we pray for the construction of their building, the parsonage above the, uh, the church building. Uh, what a blessing to see that progress uh, being made from really what was nothing, uh, just a, the roof of a building before. And I remember that's, I think I went up there to see that up on that roof, and now that's going to be a parsonage. Thank you for that uh, work that is being done. We pray too for Dan and Becca Vallette who are traveling and Uh, these upcoming days, and also perhaps uh, the Thompson family who will come uh, through this way, it seems likely. We ask you to bless them as they do that, and may their uh, ministry be good, even though they're uh, in in the waiting room waiting for permission from the country of Uruguay to go into their new place of uh, labor in the Lord's vineyard. We pray you'd open that door and uh, bless and keep them. Lord, thank you now for our brother coming to minister the word. We pray that you will fill him with your spirit and us as we listen. And may we learn uh, some 
very helpful things and just to be moved to be encouraged and closer to you through these uh, through this message tonight. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Yes? Uh, well, it's uh, Dan and Liz. Dan is Terry and Carol's son. Yeah, one of their children. And so, yes, I don't think they have been here at this church, Dan and Liz. Uh, they likely are coming the week after next, but I don't know for sure. Yeah, so... Uh, that's uh, that's a little bit up in the air. They're, they're the ones I was uh, alluding to in the prayer who are sitting in Florida waiting for permission from the Uruguayan government to go to their field of service. They have finished their ministry in Chile at a camp there. They've trained up leaders, and they're taking that over, and now they're going to be going to Uruguay to a camp which lacks enough leadership right now, and that they, they have we have that need for them to be there. And they've done a great job where they were in Chile, so they're uniquely outfitted to take that ministry, but COVID. So, yeah, very difficult. Yes. I saw Tom and Debbie, yes. Oh, yes. So uh, the office uh, was in need of personnel to help with the ministry there. And uh, in those days, this past week, they had um, uh, we had an interview for one couple. The U.S. board interviewed them, and we recommended them for a service to the mission. So they are really all but officially in. And they have to raise some support. Yes, that's Tom and Debbie's daughter, Katie, and her husband, Devin, and their two children. And they are already moved into a house down there, uh, the mission house. I actually stayed with them in their home. Yeah, and so... That was a blessing to get to know them a little bit better. And uh, they're going to be taking some, actually, some labor off of my shoulders, which I've been doing for the mission. So I'm very happy about that because there's a lot of work that uh, I have been doing and also that could be done in addition to what I've been doing, just a lack of time. And then there's a, the third person you allude to. Her name is Heidi. She is retired from the banking industry, and she sold her house in New Jersey and went down to Florida, and she's also staying now where the Terry and Carol Thompsons used to stay, and um, she's just jumped right in, and she's learning the accounting and all of that, and so it was a delight. I I had only seen her by picture before, but uh, we were able to introduce each other uh, to each other this past week, so that was nice. Yeah, so things are looking good, trusting the Lord to use that arrangement for the long term for the stability of the mission and for the mission family. They do a lot of things there in the office, uh, taking care of taxes, all the receding, all the donations that come in from hundreds of donors every month and uh, for all the missionaries, and it's, uh, it's a lot of work. Um, besides, oh, there's expense reports, and there's travel, and there's airport runs, and there's hospitality, and it's a, it's a job. So That's right. Yeah, well, if you... If you want to, you come down there sometime with me, and uh, you can see what they do firsthand. How about that? That would be nice. Yeah. Okay, very good. Jansen, don't want to take any more of your time. Come and give us the word. Pastor, you asked to give a, me to give a brief update about our ministry this morning, so I'll do that. 
speaking of missions, Kaylee and I have uh, had Children's Church this month, and we've decided to give it a missions emphasis, focusing on uh, our role in missions. And so uh, each week we focus on one missionary that uh, we support through prayer and finances and, and explain uh, the, that family to the children, share about that. And then also uh, I've been sharing a little word from specific missions passages. For instance, the first week we looked at the Great Commission in Matthew 28, talking about our responsibility as believers to be disciple makers. And one means of doing that is through missions work and the church's involvement in that. So we focused on that. Last, last week we focused on Acts 1-8 and the areas of mission to what extent do we go? Well, to all the world. And then this week, we looked at Acts chapter 13, where Barnabas and Paul are sent out by, Acts 13 says, uh, the church where? In Antioch. So whose who's, uh, prerogative is it or responsibility to send out missionaries? Well, we focused on the church is uh, the mainstay for sending out missionaries. And so that's where we were this morning in Acts chapter 13. And... Uh, We've enjoyed focusing on missions in Sunday school. Uh, we've actually been doing a broad overview of the book of Isaiah, kind of corresponding to um, pastors reading on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings. And uh, although we've taken a little bit of a break from that the past three weeks, and specifically this morning, uh, we looked at or thought about the idea of uh, what are some of the tool belt or the tools we need in our spiritual tool belt in order to read and study scripture by ourselves. Um, because we focused on the aspect that we cannot rely solely on teachers Sunday morning or Sunday evening or Wednesday evening for our spiritual life. We need to be students of the word ourselves. So, for example, we used Isaiah chapter 12 since we've been studying through that uh, book and are at that chapter now. And we looked at it and said, what are some of the things we need to know in order to properly understand and apply this chapter? And so we looked at different tools that we need. And uh, actually, I'm going to call on John, not to embarrass you. John, what was the, one of the tools we said we needed in our tool belt? Do you remember? Yes. So word studies, for instance. Maybe there's a word there in, in your chapter or your verse that you don't know or you want to know more about. And so we study that. We look at, is this word used in other chapters in this book? Or what, uh, how is it used in the other testament, either the old or new or whatever the case may be. Another one was context. We need to study the context. And for instance, in Isaiah chapter 12, uh, the first phrase says, and in that day, and then it goes on to talk about you know, the rest of the chapter. And the question is, if we just read chapter 12, we're going to have no idea when this is going to happen. We need to look back at chapter 11. And that's the day that chapter 12 is talking about at the beginning. And so that's where we were this morning, talking about tools we need in our in our, uh, maybe we could say, hermeneutical tool belt, how to properly study God's word at, on our, by ourselves on Monday through Saturday. So that is where we're at. But this evening we'll be in chapter 4 of Ruth as we conclude our time this evening uh, in, in this book. And I hope you've enjoyed our little journey through the book of Ruth. Not a very long book, but a very uh, detailed book on how God is been operating through, through uh, eternity past, through history, and through specific nations like the nation of Israel, but then even more specifically, people, individual people. And uh, so the story of Ruth, surprisingly, you might think, does not end 
with the marriage of Boaz or Ruth and Ruth as the pinnacle to this story. Of course, that is recorded in verse 13 of chapter 4, but that's not the pinnacle. The story continues for a few more verses. It doesn't either end at the birth of Ruth's son, Obed, which we find in the last few verses. Neither does it end at the resolved tension of Naomi's emptiness to fullness with the birth of this child who she nurtured. Rather, the narrator ends the story by purposely emphasizing the significance of Obed's birth, which lies in the birth of actually Obed's grandson, who is the son of Jesse, who is who? David, right? King David. And so the narrator emphasizes this genealogy for that very purpose. And the correlation between this narrative, this story, and its connection to King David. Therefore, in the providence of God, the genuine piety that we, we have seen in all these major characters, Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi, is rewarded. And the divine plan for Israel and her kings is fulfilled, ultimately through this family, this lineage. By going beyond the restorative aspects in the lifetime of Naomi or Ruth, that being said, for illustration, whether it be Ruth's marriage to Boaz, that redemption, or Naomi's fullness, it goes beyond that, those restorative aspects. By considering God's work in all of Israel through the grandson of Obed, that is David. Now, let me read for you this evening this genealogy, which we find in chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. And it says there, the author writes this, Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. And Ram begot Aminadab, and Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. And Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. Now, as we look at this genealogy, we could consider each name specifically and go through all of the passages which list each person and perhaps focus our attention on each individual person and aspects of their life. But as you may consider a genealogy, usually that is not the purpose for which the genealogy is given. It's not to focus narrowly upon each person. Rather, it is to focus upon either the person at the beginning of the genealogy or, in this case, the person at the end, the last name given in the genealogy. That is the focal point. That is the purpose or, or the reasoning for giving the genealogy. However, um, there is some significance in each name, of course. Each name represents a person which God has used throughout history to preserve this family lineage. Some of these being prominent ones, of course, in one sense, we've already talked about the first man mentioned here, Perez. Remember back uh, just uh, a few verses prior. It says uh, in verse 11, 
of chapter 4, and all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses in response to what Boaz had said to them about uh, the purpose behind his, his uh, kinsman redeemer act. In verse 11, it says, the people say, the Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel, and may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of who? Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And if you remember from our study last Wednesday, we uh, briefly spoke about this uh, incident here with Tamar, who, uh, through a very immoral act, begot Perez through Judah, who was her father-in-law. And we said that the the point that uh, is being given here is that uh, if God can use a situation like that, which obviously was not a righteous act, not to any fault of Perez, but his, his mother, if God can use that situation to preserve his line and to, and to, to work out his, his plan, can he not even more so bless and use the righteous acts of Boaz and Ruth? And the answer to that was, of course, right? If God will use those individuals, of course he can bless and use the, the marriage and the offspring of Boaz and Ruth. So as we look at this genealogy, of course, there are names that are significant to God's redemptive work and, and his, his historical work in the, in the nation of Israel, and even specifically in the, in the line of David. But uh, there is more to it than just names. Now, this genealogy is not a complete genealogy, meaning there are names that have been left out on purpose. If we were to consider uh, the date in which Perez was born, and also then uh, to the time in which uh, even Boaz was born, uh, there is a significant number of years that have, have passed during that time. And um, given the, ex- the expected lifespan and even dates that we know of, of certain people in this genealogy who lived, those dates would not add up to the number of years that have passed through this time. And so It's important to realize that there are these gaps in the genealogy, but they do not, however, undermine the accuracy of the genealogy. Just because there are gaps, meaning there are names that have been purposely left out of the genealogy, it does not undermine the accuracy or or the inerrancy of, of God's word in this case. The author is simply... uh, utilizing and focusing on key characters in a certain lineage that will help the reader identify the genealogy, certain figureheads that would be known to represent this lineage, in this case, the line of of Judah and, of course, David then. And so this is the focal point. This is the reason for the names in which he provides. And it also causes the reader to focus on the purpose of the presence of the genealogy without becoming wrapped up too much in the names For example, both Matthew and Luke also have gaps in the genealogies of Jesus. And so this is not the only instance that we see this kind of of record of a genealogy. And 
perhaps for even practical purposes, we might say that names have been omitted to save, can I say, space on the page. Think of the way in which uh, they had to record things back then. It wasn't uh, in the cloud on the computer, was it? No, it's on papyrus or a scroll or whatever writing material they would be using, and it was important to save space. So omitting genealogies, that could be endless in one aspect, uh, omitting, that is, names and genealogies uh, would help in this perhaps practical sense. This genealogy, as we noted, begins with Perez, who's, who was the son of Judah by Tamar, his daughter-in-law. It is possible that the reason the narrator chose to begin with this name is because the house of Perez, whom, because of the house of Perez whom the witnesses spoke of in verse 12, which we just looked at. However, the name which it begins with is not the focal point, as we already said, of the genealogy. Rather, it is uh, the significant role of Boaz in the midst of the genealogy, in the middle of the genealogy, that provided a means of preserving the subsequent generations that led to the birth of David, whom we know was a man after God's own heart and the representative of a loyal line, royal lineage that God would use in his kingdom plan. Now, for a moment, let's consider then what is the purpose of the genealogy. We've kind of touched on that, broadly speaking, but more specifically, what is the purpose? Well, uh, somewhat too repetitive here, though, the, the kind of genealogy that is being given here is been titled a kind of linear gene- genealogy in that it traces the line of, a dis- of descent from the first name entered, Perez in this case, to the last name named to fulfill a- an official function. That is, uh, it gives a name at the beginning and a name at the end. And the name at the end is the focal point. It is there to establish or legitimate, legitimize the claims of David, in this case, to fulfill an official function. Now, of course, David is the last one mentioned here, which may indicate that the narrator was writing during the reign of King David in order to establish another dimension of David's legal right to the throne. Of course, if we were to look even at 2 Samuel chapter 7, that also would establish his right to the throne, a divine right, a covenant made with God that established David's house and royal authority or right to the throne. However, besides the fact that maybe the writer or the author of uh, Ruth is writing this genealogy in order to legitimize or establish David's right to the throne, I think there's also another and important aspect here to the purpose of the genealogy. And that is this, the key to the purpose or the key, yeah, the purpose of this genealogy is found in the narrative to which it is attached. Let me say that again. The key to the purpose of the genealogy is found in the narrative to which it is attached. If you remove the genealogy, you undermine the whole purpose of the book of Ruth. If you remove or omit the narrative, that is chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 4, verse 17, then you've undermined the purpose of the genealogy. So you need both. They are both key and and intertwined. 
Throughout the whole book, the narrator has deliberately cast Boaz and Ruth and Naomi as models of what? Loyalty. Both of sincere devotion to God and to one another. And this was expressed in their sacrificial acts of kindness towards one another. Ruth's act of loyalty to Naomi and Boaz's act of loyalty to Ruth and Naomi in other ways between one another. And into this plot is woven markings of the providential hand of God, as we noted in our study. The birth of Obed then symbolizes the convergence of these two themes, piety, that is, or God, the person's loyalty or faithfulness, and God's providence. But the narrator is also aware that in the providence of God, the implications of a person's covenantal fidelity often extended far beyond their immediate story. In fact, as we know from further revelation, the story of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz does not end solely or at the end with the birth of Obed. It simply signals a significant turn in the history of this family, in the history of the nation of Israel as a whole, down a course that leads directly to King David. Now, Naomi and Ruth, or Boaz, could not have known what long-range fruit their compassionate and loyal conduct toward each other would bear. Could they? No, of course not. With this genealogy, the narrator declares the faithfulness of God in preserving the family that would bear the royal seed in troubled times and in in rewarding the genuine godliness of his people. However, this aspect would be unknown to Ruth or Naomi or Boaz. What was important in their day, in their time, in that moment, was their loyalty and faithfulness to Yahweh and to one another, not knowing, again, as we said, the long-range fruit that this would bear on the nation of Israel as a whole, through the royal lineage of David, and ultimately, as we know, through further revelation, unbeknownst to even the narrator, that God would use that royal line to bear and reward even further through the, the work of his son. One kind of moment of application in all of this is we have no idea the long-range fruit that can be born out of the compassionate and loyal faithfulness to one another. There it be those in the church, those in our family, and of course, most importantly, to God. And that's not our prerogative to know how God will use that faithfulness. It's just our call to be that way. But take heart in knowing that God can and will use that. He may use it as for an example to your grandchildren, or even more immediately to your children. Think of, uh, as illustration, uh, did, did the grandparents or the great-grandparents of faithful missionaries or well-known pastors know the impact that perhaps their lives would have on those later generations? 
Well, of course not. But they knew what their call was to be or to do, and that was to be faithful. And so we have that similar responsibility today. Now, interestingly, this story is perhaps what you may say, uh, this, this story is to the genealogy leading from Perez to David, what Enoch is to the family line that leads to Adam to Noah in Genesis 5.22. What do, you, what, what do I mean by this? Well, in both cases, the seventh generation is distinguished for its spirituality. Who is the seventh generation mentioned here? Boaz. Whereas the author of Genesis states the case with a sentence, Enoch walked with who? God, meaning what? He was a faithful, obedient man of God, a God-fearing man. In that similar case, then, the author of Ruth develops this seventh-generation man, Boaz, by broadening that phrase to encompass with a longer narrative story all that describes what it means to walk with God through the righteous life of Boaz. Now, we could not uh, end our study in Ruth without considering uh, the mention of Boaz in the genealogy of Jesus. Of course, we find both records include this, Matthew chapter 1, also Luke chapter 3, and we won't necessarily turn there um, and read those passages. You've, you've heard them even uh, this past few months. Pastors already talked about at least Matthew chapter 1. But let me say this. In connection to the genealogies that Matthew and Luke provide in their gospel accounts, the narrator of Ruth could not know what implications the piety of these characters would have on the generation of his own people that would come after him, as we've similarly said already. But we, that is us today in our generation, in our context, with the revelation that we've been provided in the word of God, we have the blessing of knowing that in the glorious providence of God, the faithful loyalty of Boaz and Ruth and Naomi would lay the groundwork for the redemptive work of God that extends far beyond the narrator's own time and place, for as the genealogy of Matthew 1 indicates, one greater than David comes from the loins of Boaz. The narrator's focus was on David, who was great, a man after God's own heart, but he did not have the blessing of the knowledge that we have that even one greater would come from the loins of Boaz through Obed. Not David, but a greater king. That is, in the dark days of the judges, the foundation is laid for the line that would produce the Savior, the Messiah, the Redeemer of a lost and destitute humanity. One more consideration in, in this relationship of Boaz and the genealogy of Jesus, or even more particularly, Jesus himself. There is this uh, an obvious correlation, is there not, between Boaz's act of kinsman redeemer and our redeemer. And the, what I want to mention on that note is, uh, as there is a correlation there, 
there is also a kind of opposition there, polar opposites in one way. As we consider the purpose of the kinsman redeemer, what functions could that fulfill? Well, we said that it could redeem a person, perhaps whose spouse was killed unjustly, and so that kinsman redeemer could, uh, uh, could, could legally uh, make restitution or, or, or you know, uh, if, if we want to use a, a, a word today, reparations of a sort for that person in a legal manner. The kinsman redeemer could also redeem the right to the land, as we talked about, a legal matter, a physical, materialistic matter. Also, in Boaz's case, as the kinsman redeemer, he could also fulfill a physical need. That was to, what? To preserve the name of Elimelech by marriage through Ruth, in a Leverite kind of marriage sense, intertwining the responsibilities of kinsman redeemer and Leverite marriage. But all of these have one common theme, do they not? They all, uh, they all are correlated to legal matters or physical or materialistic matters that were significant, but yet they failed in one area, and that is this. The kinsman redeemer could not redeem the person from their spiritual depravity. They could do many other things of significance, They could help them in their physical needs, their legal needs. They could provide security and comfort through marriage, but they could not do this. They could not provide atonement for the sins of that person whom they were redeeming. And that is where the kinsman redeemer stops short, or we could say is opposed to the aspects of our great redeemer who has provided for us not freedom from necessary legal matters or our our physical tribulations that we have to go through. We do not believe Christ came for a social kind of gospel purpose. That is not his gospel. Blessed are the poor in spirit, as our pastor has emphasized, and so we understand that the, 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 the significance of the redemptive work of Christ does not lie in social aspects, as did the kinsman redeemer, but in spiritual matters that transcend all areas that the kinsman redeemer could touch. That is the kind of redeemer that we need. That we need. Our physical state may deteriorate, it may not go the way we want to go, but more importantly, we have a Redeemer who has atoned for our sins. Now, let us consider as we close our time this evening a few applicational truths from the book of Ruth as we conclude our study here. We can do this by considering a few questions and and then answering those questions First of which is, what does this narrative tell us about God? What does this narrative tell us about God? Well, the book of Ruth develops a vivid picture of God's providential work in the lives of individual people. Do you believe that God works in more than just nations or eras or dispensations? Yes. 
within those times, within those eras, within those dispensations, within those nations, God is working in individual lives. Now, whereas other books of the Old Testament elevate faithful characters, for instance, Abraham, and even provide specific details about his faithful life, or Moses, or Noah, or Enoch, in a, in a concise kind of manner. Although the Old Testament and certain books do elevate these characters to a certain extent, the book of Ruth does this. It implicitly articulates God's covenantal faithfulness to specific individuals in even specific areas, areas of their life. Like, for instance, Naomi. Emptied as she was of all that she had, in one sense, of course, she did not lose Yahweh, her God. God had not forsaken. His covenant faithfulness is seen towards Naomi throughout all of the book, even from verse 1 all the way to the end, when God restored her, when Obed, in one sense, one sense act as a kinsman redeemer for her, a restorer of life. Remember this from last time? A nourisher of your old age. And that's not referring to Boaz, but to Obed. And of course, Obed's birth was a part of God's faithfulness to her in restoring her. We could also consider this question, what does the book of Ruth tell us about the human condition? What does the book of Ruth tell us about the human condition? Well, the book reminds us that humanity is prone to respond to difficult circumstances with frustration and bitterness. Of course, this isn't just seen in the book of Ruth. This is also seen in the book of Job, which we considered when we looked at Naomi's response to all that she believed God was doing against her. She believed God's hand was upon her not in the kind of blessing way that might be expected, but in a kind of uh, treacherous or, or, or uh, judgmental way. And so we see that through the example of Naomi, who represents really any person, humanity is prone to respond to these kind of circumstances with frustration and bitterness. But what is... The proper response. How should we respond? What, is, what are we to do? Well, even believers are capable of stumbling. For instance, Naomi, who we just mentioned, when God allowed her to face many tribulations. However, the book of Ruth also teaches us that the regenerated believer is capable of demonstrating and reflecting the faithfulness of God to others and toward God, even through difficult circumstances. Even like the life of Ruth, who displayed covenant faithfulness and loyalty to Yahweh and to Naomi, even when she herself was going through a troubling time. Often we kind of, uh, we kind of just shove that under the table. We don't really focus on that. Naomi had lost a husband. She obviously was grieving, just like Naomi was. Yet in all of that, the character and conduct of, of Ruth demonstrates how any regenerated believer is capable of acting, even through difficult circumstances. 
even amidst a perverse and crooked generation as we live in today. And through the exemplary lives of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, these lives uh, should not be, are not being staged as peculiar cases. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean the, the narrator is not, is not uh, putting these, these, uh, these lives, the life of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, and not staging them as peculiar cases of loyal faithfulness to God and others, Rather, he is putting them out as models, not like there's something special that uh, no one could obtain to. They're not a peculiar case. They are a model for every believer in every age. You could ask another question about the book of Ruth, and that is this question. What does it tell us of the world in general? Well, it does teach us multiple things, but one of which is God's redemptive plan for all the world is not haphazard. It is not an afterthought to the sin of Adam, nor the uh, subsequent sins of all humanity, the fallenness of the world. Rather, it is a divine orchestration throughout all of history, through specifically the nation of Israel, but also even more specifically or particularly through men and women who are both Jew and Gentile. For instance, Ruth, constantly and reoccurringly stated as a what? A Moabitess. So we see here that God's redemptive plan, his kingdom plan, is not a haphazard plan, but God is using a specific people In that day and age, a nation called Israel, and within that nation, particular people, men, both Jew and Gentile. But it also tells us this, that God is continuing to work through the church today. God used a specific nation then, and he uses a peculiar people now. Now, of course, we know the church is not a nation. It is not a a, uh, a civil government in that sense, but God is continuing to use particular people to, to complete and perfect and accomplish his perfect plan. It also tells us other aspects of the world, about the world, and that is this, that uh, the world is a fallen world, is it not? Even the Jews themselves were in a, in a troubling, kind of a light way to put it, era of time. Remember when these events were occurring? During the time of the judges, when God was causing men to raise up and to teach the people of God to repent, to turn from their wickedness. And of course, we said in our, in our study past that they would turn for a time. But then what? Humanity would take its course, the sinful part of humanity, that is, and they would fall back into wickedness. And God, of course, would then judge them. Of course, we know a broader uh, reasoning behind their own nation's fallenness was the fallenness of the nations around them. 
For instance, Moab. Yet God was even using particular people from those wicked nations as well to accomplish his redemptive plan. Finally, we could ask this question. What does it tell us of the individual believer's life of faith? And these are lessons for us then as well. Because the life of a regenerated believer should not look that different a thousand years ago than it does today. Right? The spiritual transformation in the life of Ruth begins somewhat abruptly in our minds because of what we're told since we have no record of her previous life or spiritual practices prior to her marriage to Elimelech's son, Malon. We don't know her kind of religious beliefs, her practices. We can assume, because of the nation which she came from, uh, that it was a very wicked belief system that she was a part of, however intimately involved or, or not she was a part of it. But that's not what is emphasized here in Ruth, is it? Whatever her case may be or her former life, that is not the, the focus or the, the attention. Rather, the character of Ruth is the focal point as it's relayed to us, which demonstrates what it means to establish a relationship with God, the God of both the Jews and the Gentiles. Let me say that again. The character of Ruth demonstrates what it means to establish a relationship, to go from one way of living, to turn to another way of living, a relationship established with Yahweh and what that life looks like. It doesn't matter what her previous life was like. The focal point is not upon that. It's upon who God is, what God is doing in her and how God is using her. And that should be our focal point today. It is not to rehearse in our minds or to continually dwell upon where we were in our fallen state, in our past lives, however we lived them. But what is God doing now in us? And do we look like, does our character demonstrate what an established, firm, committed relationship with Yahweh should look like? The genuine faithfulness of Ruth to Naomi and to Yahweh is not particular to her situation, or for that matter, any other illustration of that in the Old Testament. Rather, as we said kind of earlier, it is the prime example, it is the prime model of what any person or woman of God ought to display. In addition, her submissive, obedient response to the instruction of Naomi is a positive example of the right response of children, teenagers, young men and women towards their elders, especially those who are men and, and women of God who desire to train up their children and those younger them in the ways of God. Of course, likewise, Boaz models what it means to be honorable, to be noble, to be upright and esteemed in the sight of others and in the sight of God. Not as a measure of self-exaltation, 
but a sincere devotion and loyalty to God and to family. Do their, does their character, does their demeanor, does their conduct ring similar to that of our lives today? Should it look different? My argument is hopefully biblical in that it should not look that much different. Maybe not every aspect of, of what they did. Of course, we don't have the kinsman redeemer kind of role today. But there are things similar to that that we should be obediently doing. Things that are honorable and upright and praiseworthy that would cause us to be esteemed in the sight of God and cause others to look upon us in our city, in our Bethlehem, in our Ephrathah, and say, these persons, this person is an upright man or an upright woman. And God will bless those kinds of people. As we see through the book of Ruth, how God was providentially preserving the line of David through peculiar people, a Moabitess, or even through Rahab, a harlot. God is using any kind of person. The important part is our responsibility of being spiritually obedient, faithful, loyal men and women of God that are seeking to do what he desires of us in this day and age. And who knows how God will use that in generations to come. Let's pray this evening. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, may the story of Ruth not just be for uh, just for an aspect of enjoyment to read, but Lord, may the truths that we can glean from them ring true in our lives. And if they're not, may we settle it in our minds and our hearts today to take care of those matters where they fall short. Lord, of course, we don't seek to just model our lives after another person. But ultimately, we seek to model our lives after the life of our Lord and Savior and Redeemer, Jesus, and the life that he modeled for us. We thank you for that revelation, that knowledge of how he lived, so that we can obediently follow after him and, and, uh, and be a part of the work that God is doing, both in us and through us, Lord. We thank you for all these things. In your precious and holy name, your Jesus, our Savior and Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us this evening. If you're online, may the Lord bless you. Hope that we can see you soon. And uh, invite you to enjoy some fellowship with one another this evening before you go your way. Thank you. You're dismissed. <laughs>